Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we connect trending evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, we are going to talk about the new American College of uh, Physicians guidelines uh, for the treatment of osteoporosis. You know, this is always interesting because osteoporosis, like, you know, atrial fibrillation and hypertension, it seems like then uh, there's a million different organizations that have their own set of guidelines. You know, you've got the, you know, the endocrine society, the menopause society, you know, you've got ACP, you've got some other endocrine societies that do it as well. And, you know, fortunately, I think most of them that I've read over the years seem to be relatively similar to each other. I like the ACP one that we're going to talk about today just because I think it's pretty concise. It's not a 800 page, you know, you know, booklet that you've got to kind of wade through to get the information that you need, which I think is, is really quite good. And one of the things that I always, you know, say about osteoporosis to my students is that it, it almost seems like osteoporosis is the forgotten disease. You know, it, it, it seems, and I think there's evidence to support this, that it's, it seems to be overlooked. You know, it's, it's not something I suspect that unless you've got a, you know, a frail elderly female that I think most people even think about, you know, and, you know, there are certainly other times when we probably should be thinking about it more and we really don't. Uh, just in the last week, I've had a couple of patients who had to, you know, get started on, on high dose steroids for a while and, you know, at a minimum, those patients should be on calcium and vitamin D, and we should consider screening them and, you know, with, with, with some sort of, of DEXA-like sort of, of calculator to see what's going on and see if they require therapy. And I think there's some evidence to suggest that patients who are on long-term steroids probably should receive therapy. So, you know, that, again, it's just, it seems that, you know, in the, in the primary care world, it's something that, that we don't often put in the forefront of our minds, like we do hypertension or diabetes, but it often, you know, it, you know, it, it, it's not that to dismiss it as, as an, you know, a small disease in addition to the, the pain and the decreased quality of life it is, I, I think don't think we want to overlook the fact that there's a correlation with increased mortality in osteoporotic fractures, especially hip fractures. You know, we know that that uh, in patients who, uh, who are over age 70 who have a hip fracture uh, in one to two years, a significant number of those patients will pass. And, and so again, you know, it, it's not a, a disease that is minor. It's not a disease that we should forget, but it often seems like it just kind of, you know, it isn't something that isn't brought up. If the other problem, of course, is with all the newer age out there that we're going to talk about today, I think there's also the, the, the big question about who manages those patients. Primary care providers are probably going to feel uncomfortable, you know, dealing with some of the medications we're going to talk about, often because they're monoclonal antibodies and also they're extremely expensive. And, and um, many um, insurance companies would want a subspecialist like an endocrinologist or a rheumatologist, you know, basically making those calls, um, you know, and, and so again, you know, again, you know, who really handles osteoporosis, especially when it's hard to get in to see room and endo, you know, often the, the, I think the primary care providers one is going to have to pick up the slack there. And again, they just don't feel comfortable prescribing a lot of these medications. Um, many of you are well aware of the FRAX calculator, and, and we're going to have a, a link to that in show notes. But the FRAX calculator is, is a tremendous resource. It's completely free. Um, and it actually is, is calibrated for the different countries that you're in. And so uh, you can actually set the calculator to the US, the UK, you know, a place in Europe or wherever you're, you're hearing podcasts today and, and punch in the information. And it'll actually give you an idea of what the patient's risk of uh, fracture and the different types of fractures over time, and it will help you also direct therapy. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a great resource for, for those treating patients with osteoporosis. Uh, it's worth noting that, you know, we, we all know that postmenopausal females are at increased risk of osteoporosis, but there's other risk factors as well. Um, you know, like we know that rheumatoid arthritis, current smoking, uh, increased alcohol intake, which they define as greater than three drinks a day, uh, vitamin D deficiency, hyperthyroidism, and other drugs. And, and again, we, we talk 
talk about corticosteroids, but don't forget that, you know, old fashioned uh, anticonvulsants like uh, uh, phenytoin, phenobarbital, stuff like that. And then also certain chemotherapy drugs, you know, all can increase, increase the risk of osteoporosis. I think, again, steroids are the ones that, that, that kind of go to most clinicians' minds, but it is worth noting that there's some other causes as well. So in the guidelines, what they do is, is kind of a standard thing that you'll see in guidelines now. They pull all the literature they can on the treatment of osteoporosis. So in this case, uh, they're looking at, as you might imagine, the bisphosphonates, and they look them look at them pretty much as a group. They don't necessarily uh, you know, separate them out into the oral versus IV ones. They look at the rank uh, ligand inhibitor, uh, denosumab, which I, in my world, you know, in my area of, of the world, seems to be being used more and more. It looks at the recombinant parathyroid hormone, a teriparatide, a sclerosin inhibitor, which is a romozuzumab, and, and uh, the CIRM uh, drugs like raloxidine, which I hardly ever see used anymore. So, uh, you know, the guidelines basically take a look at all the literature surrounding the treatment of, of osteoporosis with those different types of drugs. And one of the things that, that they point out in, in the guidelines is that sometimes there are some different definitions for what the, the fractures we're talking about and, you know, and what kind and things along those lines. And they, they wanted to have kind of a standardized definition of osteoporotic fracture outcomes, because that's obviously what you're going to be looking at with these studies. And so they note that like there's clinical outcomes associated from fracture. And that's basically, you know, anywhere in the body, you can have a fracture. Um, and their definition is any fracture, either vertebral or non-vertebral that is discovered because the patient is symptomatically uh, verified by radiograph. So basically they see on some sort of imaging that the patient has of has a fracture. For example, a patient seeks care for symptoms that are suggestive of a fracture after a fall from a standing height and the clinician orders radiographs by which the, the fracture is basically uh, confirmed. So that would be an example of a clinical fracture. And then you of course, course divide them up into clinical vertebral and non-vertebral fractures, uh, which can include in the non-vertebral, uh, the toes, the skull, the, uh, the face, the hip, the, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So again, uh, a patient breaks through tibia during a fall from a standing height and the fracture again is subsequently conf confirmed by imaging. Uh, hip fractures are kind of uh, taken separately again, just because uh, we know the high uh, risk of, of mortality associated with them. It, the pain is, has to be bad enough where the patient can't, can't get up due to the hip pain and of course is confirmed on, on imaging. And then a radiographic vertebral, uh, uh, the patient may or may not have symptoms, but it's just confirmed on, on some sort of imaging. So those are the out outcomes they wanted standardized definitions for the outcomes when we, when we take a look at, at the, the treatment for each one of those. They then define the population that they're making the recommendations on. And it's, as you imagine, uh, both premenopausal and postmenopausal females. And for the first time um, in recent guidelines, they have they updated the guidelines for males of osteoporosis. And again, you know, though males are at less risk, they certainly have no risk for developing osteoporosis. If they have a low bone mass or if they've been on steroids, et cetera, et cetera, they're, they're at risk as well. They then pulled all the literature looking at this and, and they apply the, the grade scale like almost all guidelines do now. Um, they also looked at, besides the clinical outcomes we've just discussed, uh, they also looked at functional status, if it was reported, quality of life, serious adverse events if it was reported, and uh, withdrawal due to adverse events. They also did a pretty good thing where they talked about, about uh, cost to Medicare. And then again, they, they, they kind of prioritize Medicare benefits because many of these patients, of course, are going to be on Medicare because they're going to be over age 65. They also wanted to take a look at studies that had a long uh, time window. Um, um, you know, one of the criticisms of a lot of these studies is that they only go on for a year. And it's like, well, I mean, is that long enough time for someone to have a, a, a fracture outcome that is clinically important? And so they really tried to, to uh, put most of the weight and, and give the highest grade scoring to someone who has a long 
a long study. So they prioritized studies that, that were over 36 months versus shorter 36 months as well. And that included both efficacy and, and adverse effects. They wanted to look at uh, at least uh, studies that had at least one time point of fracture assessment. So again, not just doing DEXA scans or something like that. They wanted to look at, at, at fracture assessment and they prioritized prevention of hip fractures and clinical vertebral fractures followed by all the other types of fractures, again, because of the quality of life and potential mortality um, implications of that. They, of course, focused on randomized controlled trials. Um, they did look at some observational studies for clinically important adverse drug reactions because, of course, that they're a little bit more likely to see in, in when you have a large database and a retrospective cohort study. And uh, that's basically it. Like all these things, they, they basically made their recommendations either strong or conditional and either high or low certainty evidence, basically. So let's get to the recommendations. So uh, recommendation 1A, the American College of Physicians recommends that clinicians use bisphosphonates for the initial pharmacologic treatment of osteoporosis to reduce the risk of fractures in postmenopausal women uh, diagnosed with primary osteoporosis. That is a strong recommendation and high certainty evidence. I don't think that's a big surprise to anybody. We now have multiple studies upon multiple studies that show that, that the bisphosphonates improve outcomes and patients with osteoporosis. And they do note that there's some issues with osteoporosis and, and, and they don't make light of that certainly, but, but they note that on the whole, um, you're going to see a, a significant decrease in, in hip fractures. And they actually you know, looked at absolute risk uh, differences in some of the big studies and found you're gonna have six fewer hip fractures per thousand patients treated. Clinical vertebral fractures, there's gonna be a difference of 18 fewer uh, events for, per thousand patients. And then any clinical fracture of 24 fewer events per thousand patients. So, you know, again, those numbers may seem a little small, but I think they're certainly in line with a lot of the other therapies we use as far as hypertension and, and, and diabetes and things along those lines. So showing that bisphosphonates have robust data to support that their, their use in, in effectiveness in, in, in preventing clinical fractures. Keep in mind that, and I, you know, I think most people are aware of this, that bisphosphonates, of course, slow uh, the, the decline of bone resorption, their anti-resorptive agents. Uh, they don't usually gain new bone in patients, and that's that's you know the potential advantage of some of the newer agents that we have, and we'll talk about those in just a little bit. So the other thing about bisphosphonates is they again, as I said before, they they kind of look at them as a group. They really don't prioritize one versus another. And there's some you know they note in the in the text that you know as you might imagine, uh, there's a few head-to-head -head studies looking at uh, uh, zoledronic acid, which is the intravenous once a year formulation of bisphosphonates that is sometimes used uh, compared to oral agents, and and really haven't found a whole lot of difference between the two. So they in the guidelines don't call out a specific bisphosphonate. And I would suggest that whatever the cheapest and easiest bisphosphonate for you to use is the way to go. Bisphosphonates do have adverse effects. Probably the most common ones, of course, is the you know, GI upset, esophagitis, all those kind of things. Um, I've had a lot of people over the years say, well, you know, if you have somebody who has bad GERD, you know, they probably shouldn't be on oral bisphosphonates. That I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think it's certainly reasonable to try oral bisphosphonates in them. And if they follow the, you know, the, the dosing you know, recommendations of sitting up, full glass of water, nothing else, you know, I, you know, until they basically, you know, complain of an increased worse of symptoms, you know, I would say that, that it's probably reasonable to, to at least try a, give a trial of oral bisphosphonates given the cost of, of everything else you're going to be using, including intravenous aldronic acid, which is, is, is not cheap. Uh, the other advantage that intravenous aldronic acid, I think also has is that, is that it's once a year. So, I mean, you don't have to worry about compliance and things.
things like that, which is kind of nice. But again, there's there, there are some issues. The other issue is is what to do in patients with with chronic kidney disease, and and you know the, that this has been a controversial issue for at least 20 years. Is you know can you use bisphosphonates, especially the intravenous bisphosphonates, in patients with severe renal ins uh, insufficiency? Most of the nephrologists I know are, are not jumping up and down to use intravenous aldronic acid in these patients. Um, you know there is some thought that perhaps that there's an increased risk of toxicity of the bisphosphonates of the intravenous bisphosphonates in patients with with, with with, you know, CKD, say stage four or five or dialysis. But again, I, you know, uh, I think that's a controversial notion. And I think it has to be kind of looked at by a case by case basis. I think that retrospective uh, studies that I've read over the years have suggested that that, it, you know, there's a, a possible signal of harm, but it doesn't seem to be a very powerful or large signal. So I think it just has to be kind of a case by case basis. The other uh, interesting adverse effects that I think most people are aware of is osteoporosis recursus of the jaw, um, which it can be pretty catastrophic in, in patients who get it. Um, I've seen a couple of cases of it over the years. Um, as it's it's mostly most closely associated with again the intravenous bisphosphonates and and, and particularly in patients who are receiving intravenous bisphosphonates uh, for um, bone metastases and cancer. That's where the, the highest signal is. But there have been reports of, of patients even taking oral bisphosphonates and getting osteoporosis of the jaw. And you know I was I was always taught and I think it's long been kind of the teaching that you know before you start bisphosphonates if the patient has any elective uh, dentistry they need done, they need a tooth pulled, or they need, you know, something along those lines, it's a good idea to get all that done before you start the, the bisphosphonate again, just because that's where the, the, the increased risk of osteoporosis of the jaw seems to occur. The other thing that's always kind of dogged bisphosphonates is, is the, the risk of atypical uh, femoral or subtrochanteric fractures in observational studies compared with patients with osteoporosis who are not treated bisphosphonates. This is a low certainty of evidence, but there's been a, a few retrospective studies that suggest that even though uh, the overall risk of a fracture decreases in bisphosphonates, that when people do have fractures and they're on bisphosphonates, that they have these kind of unusual uh, femoral fractures. And the, the evidence, the thought is, is that there may be something with the bisphosphonates because, of course, they, they intercalculate with bones forever. I mean, people ask what the half-life of bisphosphonates is, and it's like, I don't know, you know, years because it actually gets into your bones and stays in your bones, that it, it that when newborn uh, bone formed in the, in the skeleton, that for some reason, it's not the, the same level or, or structure as, as bone that isn't. So, you know, again, I think these are all really, really rare side effects and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't keep me from using bisphosphonates in patients as well. So that's the, the first recommendation. And the second recommendation has to do, again, with the rank, rank ligand inhibitor denosumab, which I'm seeing more and more used. And uh, they, they note that it is a second-line treatment to reduce risk of fractures in postmenopausal females diagnosed with primary osteoporosis who have contraindications to bisphosphonates. And they list that as a conditional recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. Just like the bisphosphonates, I think they do they do a pretty good job of looking at denosumab and its overall benefit. They note that studies denosumab has decreased clinical vertebral fractures by about 16 per thousand patients, and hip fractures by four fewer events per thousand patients, and any clinical fracture a fracture by 14 fewer events per thousand patients. And they note that, of course, there's you know, hard uh, very, very few uh, studies, but there have been a couple of RCTs that have actually directly compared denosumab and bisphosphonates and found uh, there's probably no big difference as far as the benefit between bisphosphonates and adenosinab and clinical uh, fracture reduction at 36 months or beyond. So I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you would primarily want to use adenosinab in patients who just can't tolerate oral bisphosphonates or have some sort of, of contraindication. Adenosinab does seem to be safe in patients with renal insufficiency. So that might be another reason if it, there was some concern about using them in renal insufficiency. The other benefit, of course, is that it's given Q6 months. So that's kind of nice.
nice as far as far as a, a adherence standpoint. But of course, uh, the, the strike is that it's very expensive compared to oral bisphosphonates, and it doesn't seem to be completely absent as far as an average of jaws necrosis. Jaws necrosis actually has been reported within uh, denosumab, and, and I've, I've had physicians uh, in, in the last five or 10 years, you know, say, well, you know, I'm, this patient ends up having a lot of dent dental problems or, you know, and I'm afraid they're going to they need major, you know, dental procedures and surgery over the next five to 10 years. I'm really nervous about putting them on this, uh, this phosphonate, you know, kind of use denosumab and, and actually denosumab has been reported to have uh, jaws necrosis as well. So I'm not sure from a, from a safety standpoint, uh, you can really say that denosumab is, is kind of clear from, from that particular adverse effect. And so, I mean, again, I think overall the risk is incredibly rare, um, but uh, that if, if the only reason you're using denosumab is, is fear of jaws necrosis with bisphosphonates, um, I'm not sure that that you're you're really making things that much safer. So, so those are the anti-resort agents, and I would say that's what the vast, vast majority of patients with osteoporosis are going to get. They're either going to get bisphosphonate or denosumab, but it is worth noting that we have several anabolic drugs that, that are now and have actually been approved in, in the last several years that not only um, uh, have been approved for osteoporosis, but they actually, you know, because they're anabolic, actually gain bone mass back. So unlike the anti-resorptive agents that just prevent bone loss, these drugs actually will increase uh, uh, your overall bone mass. And we've had one for a long time. Par teriparatide has been around for probably 20 years, but very few people use it. It's, it's extremely expensive. Um, um, you have to give it uh, by an injection every day. Um, so that, that, that's always been a problem with it. But one of the newer classes of drugs that, that fall into this are, are the sclerostin inhibitors. And the, the one that, that uh, has been recently approved is romazuzumab, um, which uh, uh, actually works uh, to block this, this uh, um, receptor that leads to increased bone mass, basically. And so there is, I guess, basically to say that, that, that we've got you know, a, a couple of other new things to, to, to consider as far as anabolic agents. Uh, my guess is, is that most primary care physicians are probably not going to be you know, prescribing these drugs, again, just because I think if for no other reason, insurance companies are going to want some sort of subspecialist sign-off on, on these medications because of their cost. As far as the recommendations, ACP does uh, suggest that, that uh, romozumab or recombinant uh, um, PTH, which is teriparatide, followed by bisphosphonate can be, can be used, but they know that it should only be used in, in females with primary osteoporosis at a very high risk of fracture. And, and uh, they also note that the harms of these medications may out, outweigh the, the benefits in patients who are elderly, which they define as over age 74. So um, again, after treatment uh, initiation with romazuzumab, it notes that it, it decreases uh, clinical or fractures with less than four, uh, well, four fewer events per thousand patients, uh, um, and then radiographic vertebral fractures with 13 fewer events per thousand patients and any clinical fractures by nine fewer events per thousand patients compared to placebo. But interestingly, prevention of hip fractures was not reported. So I think that's kind of interesting. And uh, there have been some comparisons of bisphosphonates and, and, and uh, at 24 uh, month follow-up evidence has shown that the differences after 12 months of romuzumab treatment were no longer significant for any cl uh, clinical fractures and radiographic vertebral fractures after adjustment for age and other factors. So again, it isn't like these are miracle drugs that you know, are going to, you know, basically completely cause your, your skeleton to come, uh, come back the way it was when you were 20 years old. That's not going to do that. But in, in very, very high risk patients, you could consider uh, a treatment course um, up, up to two years with these uh, drugs. And you do have to follow them with a bisphosphonate course.
course, because if you don't, that any bone gain you get basically just rapidly uh, disappears after after you stop these medications. So I, I think it becomes uh, from a pharmacotherapy standpoint pretty complex. You know, I mean, okay, well now I got to start you on this super expensive drug, and then after that, make sure you take this phosphonates, or you're going to lose all the benefit and, and and throw that money away basically. So I still don't see any of the the anabolic agents really being used a whole lot, except in patients for you know who are maybe postmenopausal but haven't reached the age of 75, um, maybe on chronic steroids or, or something along those lines where uh, they're going to be very, very high risk of, of, of fracture. And, and you're trying to give these patients basically every every chance to not get a significant uh, fracture. But with the evidence, you know, looking at, at, at hip fractures and where they may or may not help, um, you know, I think that 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 does call into question how much we should be really using these medications. So, you know, there, there are some significant uh, uh, difficulties with using the anabolic agents, I think. And, and that's something we just got to kind of keep in mind that, that they're expensive, they're, they're going to be complex uh, agents, um, they do have some side effects associated with them. Um, but, but um, you know, again, probably in the super duper high risk patients, uh, like I said, to my mind, people who are, who are, you know, already have maybe a vertebral fracture who are relatively young, or patients who are on um, uh, uh, steroids, something that would be at really, really bad risk, it's something to think about doing. They really don't talk a lot about the CIRM drugs and, and raloxifene, there's a couple on the market now, raloxifene is the one that's been around the longest uh, that, you know, uh, they, they, they don't really hardly mention it in the, in the recommendations at all. We know that these drugs have a mild effect on, on uh, uh, reducing uh, um, fractures and hip fractures, but the numbers are, are much lower than uh, say the bisphosphonates or, or anything else. That and the other pieces that they're not really well tolerated at all. Um, you've got a box warning for thromboembolism and stroke. And as anybody who's used these medications know that hot flashes is extremely common with these drugs and, and makes their tolerability really come into question. There was a long, there was, you know, the STAR study that came out in the 1990s and, and early 2000s, uh, a couple other studies that suggest that patients at high risk for breast cancer may get you might get double benefit um, in females at high risk for breast cancer that the serum inhibitors may may prevent uh, uh, a recurrence of breast cancer as well as help with with osteoporosis. Um, but I have hardly seen anybody on on um, um, raloxifene in the last you know ten years. It just you hardly ever see anybody on it anymore. And I think it's largely due to toler tolerability and a, and a decrease um, of benefit compared to the bisphosphonate. So, so how do we sum all this up? Well, the the guidelines um, do have a very nice uh, uh, table, some very nice tables and very nice algorithms. And again, we'll put that in the show notes. It's, it's, a, it's free. You just have to go to the ACP uh, uh, website. So we're going to kind of summarize, you know, some of the, the clinical things that you need to know about these drugs right after this message from CE Impact. Have you purchased your 2023 CE Impact membership yet? Go to ceimpact.com so you don't miss out on getting CE for great education like this podcast. Go to ceimpact.com to learn more. So we're back talking about the uh, ACP guidelines for uh, treatment of osteoporosis. We've kind of gone through, you know, step by step what the recommendations are. And I think the ACP did a really good job of, of, of taking a look at the relative benefits and trying to take a look at almost the number needed to treat. I mean, again, uh, you know, looking at the number of, of, of clinical fractures that are reduced per thousand patients. So how do we kind of summarize this up? You know, the anti-resorptive drugs, then we're really talking again about the bisphosphonates and denosumab, uh, the bis, you know, the only intravenous uh, um, uh, anti-resorptive agent, of course, is zoltronic acid. Zoltronic acid has been shown to, to decrease the risk of hip fractures, vertebral fractures, any clinical fractures, and radiographic vertebral fractures. So all the, the classifications we talked about earl earlier, the oral bisphosphonates have largely been shown to do that, although 
although clinical um, vertebral fractures in many studies has not been shown, but more importantly, hip fractures and any clinical fractures pretty much across the board with, with, with the oral bisphosphonates. They list all the same side effects for all of them, except obviously uh, intravenous hydronic acid is, is not going to have the, the GI issues and stuff like that. But again, the osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femur fractures and, and uh, 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 muscle pain are, are the common side effects. Um, uh, again, those are rare enough adverse effects. I, I, I would think about it, but I would certainly not let it stop me from using these medications in most patients. They note uh, that the oral ones are, are relatively inexpensive, though uh, some of these are still pretty pricey. Um, you know, uh, if you take a look at Med Medicare uh, 2019 data, and maybe these have dropped a little bit, but they note that um, uh, um, several of these medications, even the oral ones that are generic, are still anywhere from $200, $400 a month, which really surprised me. I mean, I've known, you know, Lidronate has been dirt cheap for years and years and years, but but I didn't realize that, that uh, Residronate and and, and some of these other ones are, are actually quite, quite pricey, even in their generic form. The azaldronic acid, um, uh, you know, of course, as you might imagine, it's it's fairly pricey too. But it's been generic for several years, and and the and the price can range for Medicare beneficiaries on anywhere from three hundred to to thousand dollars for that that single dose. So that that's kind of nice. The nosumab, again, they note that you're giving it subcutaneously every every six months. It has been shown to decrease, you know, all types of the four fractures: so hip fracture, clinical vertebral fracture, and any clinical fracture, um, depending on, on the, the, the Medicare uh, uh, Part D plan or, or other plans, it can range anywhere from two to $12,000 a year. So again, it can be quite pricey. And I think that's something to kind of keep in mind. Uh, it's big adverse effects. Again, we noticed that we noted the osteoporosis of the jaw has still been reported as well as atypical fractures. Um, and then dermatologic reactions um, and infection, uh, including skin infections, has, has actually been uh, shown with denosumab. So again, not saying it's not a, not a, a safe drug, but it doesn't is completely free of adverse effects either. The anabolic agents, um, they note there's a couple of the, the parathyroid hormone related uh, drugs. There's paratyroid, if I can talk, <laughs> and abloparatide, and they are, are both given by subcutaneous injection once a day. Uh, the latter teriparatide uh, has been shown to, uh, again, decrease hip fracture, clinical vertebral fracture, and any clinical fracture, um, and uh, it, it is incredibly expensive, $22,000 uh, uh, as annual costs, and interestingly, the newer medication, uh, uh, albuparatide, actually is much less, but it's still $10,000 a year, so I'll kind of keep that in mind. Uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, it, giving these drugs may be uh, dangerous in patients who, who, who already have some sort of uh, osteosarcoma sarcoma risk or things along those lines because you're building new bone, um, but that but they're relatively safe except for injection site reactions, which is nice. And then uh, romazumab is the other uh, anabolic agent that's come out. It's given by subcutaneous injection once a month for 12 months. It has uh, not been shown to decrease a hip fracture, but it's been shown to decrease vertebral fractures and any fractures. Surprisingly, it is less expensive than, than uh, uh, teriparatide at only $5,000 a year. Again, not, not, not saying that's cheap, but it is interesting to note that it's usually the newer drugs that are much more expensive. It has a box warning for increased risk of cardiovascular disease or, or, or stroke. So you'd want to be cautious in those patients. And then finally, again, they note raloxifene uh, by mouth once a day, but, but uh, even the generic, again, is a uh, surprise to me, is quite pricey, up to 600 bucks a month. And of course, all the, all the issues we've talked about as far as hot flashes and stuff. So, I mean, the bottom line from the guidelines, I think, is that, is that you know, bisphosphonates are, are still your first line agents. And I think the majority of patients are going to stay on them. There's, you know, in, in increasing, you know, 
know, there is some uncertainty about how long you keep them on these drugs, five years versus 10 years. Um, I know in the early 2000s, the, the, there was a couple of studies suggested that five years were as good as 10 years. But I think in patients at very high risk, it becomes kind of a, a, a conversation to have with the patient. Can you continue it on for 10 years or should we just you know, stop it at five years and, and see how things go? So that's something else to consider with the oral bisphosphonates as well. So that's it for this uh, episode of Game Changers. Thanks for listening. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you, Jeff. Don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode or get access to the CE by becoming a member at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week on the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast.